Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 13th, we are studying Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. St. Paul's words here are well known. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What does that mean for our lives as Christians? And what does that have to do with the season of Advent? We will be exploring those themes and more today. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Rick Mars. Dr. Mars serves as Professor of Practical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mars, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's very good to be with you, Pastor Apple. Thank you for having me again, and blessed Advent to you. Thank you. Blessed Advent to you as well. Uh, that's the theme for our conversation. That's the reason we're looking at Philippians 4 today. This text is the Epistle reading for Series C in the third Sunday in Advent. This also shows up in the one-year lectionary for the fourth Sunday in Advent. So just by way of introduction, Dr. Mars, how is a text like this, really short and I think well-known, how does it fit into the season of Advent? Yeah, I mean, it is preparing us for the joy that is coming in Christ. In a few weeks, we're going to be singing joy to the world. The Lord has come, and we wait for that and wait for that and wait for that joy during Advent. Um, and yeah, we use verses like this from Philippians as well as the other um, Psalms and Old Testament lesson that comes from that um, for that particular Sunday. It, they all just work in together for us to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. So, Yeah, I mean, the coming of Jesus is the you know, the theme of Advent, we anticipate is coming at Christmas, we anticipate is coming on the last day. And and joy, I mean, I think when we, as Christians who've gone through Advent time and time again, joy is something that we're familiar with when it comes to Advent. And yet, you know, when you think about that in terms of the waiting that happens during Advent, joy isn't something that we always associate with waiting. And I mm-hmm. think this will tie into the conversation that we have about this text in particular. But but how how do those two things go together? Because I'm I'm often not very joyful when I wait. So how, <laughs> how can we be joyful as Christians waiting for our Lord's coming? Yeah, well, and even in the context of, of this particular letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, he's writing it from prison. So, I mean, he says that in chapter one, that he's imprisoned for the sake of Christ right then when he's writing it. And the gospel lesson that's assigned for the same Sunday is about John the Baptist being in prison and Jesus talking about him being such a wondrous prophet and so so forth. So uh, it is interesting that in the Christian life, suffering and joy can live together when we understand the bigger picture that Jesus is suffering leads to his overcoming our sin, which leads to joy for him, which then leads to joy for us, despite the fact that we're still living in this world where we are struggling and suffering. And, you know, we think of it for the last two years as being more than what we've experienced in suffering in the past. So, 
Yeah, the, the connection between joy and suffering, I think, is something we're going to need to explore. And I appreciate you bringing out the example, not the example, but the, well, what happens to Christ and the way that he goes through the suffering leading to joy. And those two yeah. things even go together for him, providing, I mean, and then when we are in Christ, that becomes our experience as well, so that we can be joyful even in the midst of suffering. So, Dr. Mars, you mentioned this already, that Paul writes this letter to the Philippians from prison. That's pretty key context anytime we open up this particular letter to know that he's in prison. What other themes, what are some of the major points that he makes in this epistle that'll help us just jump into these few verses from chapter four today? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it is a letter of thanksgiving. For many of Paul's other letters, he's writing to correct some major error, doctrinal problem, or living problem that they're having. I mean, the Corinthians, the Galatians, he's saying some rather harsh things to them in spots because they aren't living the Christian life in various ways that they should be, even though they are Christians. And he gives thanks for them uh, that they are uh, part of the body of Christ. But this particular letter to the Philippians is a big thank you letter from a missionary saying, I wanted to update you on some of the things that are going on and wanted to tell you more about your Savior, Jesus. So the first chapter is kind of thanksgiving and rejoicing. And Paul's saying to live as Christ for him, to die as gain. And then the second chapter is this great Christological hymn. Uh, Christ's incarnation and humility are brought out. So the, the clear gospel message of what Christ has done for us in coming from heaven and conquering sin, death, and the devil uh, is just very clearly pointed out to us. And though, therefore, how do we live that out? Uh, that gospel of Christ's righteousness in chapters three and four, you know, how do we stand firm in Him? Paul just spells those sorts of things out then, as he often does. I mean, in many of Paul's letters, the first half of the letter is all about Jesus. And the second half of the letter is all about how do we live a Christian life because of what Jesus has done. And there's a little bit of moving around in this letter that uh, more than what in some other letters, but in general, that uh, outline uh, holds up fairly well in, in the Philippian letter as well. So, Yeah, I mean, you definitely see the, the theme of joy and thanksgiving come through very strongly in this text, but really throughout the letter, which again is, is very striking considering Paul's context that he is writing yeah. this letter from prison. And even, I mean, when you think through the, the book of Acts, Philippi is the city where Paul and Silas are in prison for a time, yeah. and, and that's where they actually are, are singing hymns there in prison. So this is, I guess, the joy that Paul writes about is something that he actually experienced there in Philippi. This church has witnessed firsthand, and now he's he's writing to them with that same joy, even though he's he finds himself in prison yet again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's not in prison in Philippi at this point, but yeah, he's right. in prison and writing to them. Uh, the irony of that he got put in prison when he went to Philippi, and actually some of the other stuff because he, he gets out of prison because he uses his uh, Roman citizenship. And now then in this letter, he kind of emphasizes to the Philippians, don't you remember that you're all citizens of God's mm -hmm. kingdom? You're, that's an even more important kingdom. And for Roman, for Roman, the Roman world to be a citizen was a huge thing. Citizens had all kinds of rights. Non-citizens had no rights, had very few rights at all. 
And so he's reminding them that while they may not personally be a citizen of Rome, they are citizens of a higher calling and therefore they can act out uh, in ways that citizens should and can right. act out. So, Right. Well, and I think that that ties in very nicely with what we're going to read in, in our section today, that this is the joy that Paul talks about here is a joy that's in the Lord. It's mm-hmm. not some sort of, it, it's not just a generic happy feeling, but it is a joy in the Lord. Uh, just like, you know, to be a Roman citizen brings a, a certain you know, character of life with it. So to be in the Lord brings this joy with it. And, and I mean, I think that that theme of of being citizens of God's kingdom, even more than a, any earthly empire, and that's what brings the joy. That's going to tie in very nicely to what we've got in this short text today. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at the text. This is Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is the text we're looking at today, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. And again, that's an epistle reading in the season of Advent in Series C of the three-year lectionary. That's on the third Sunday in Advent. And in the one-year lectionary, it's in the fourth Sunday in Advent. So, Dr. Mars, rejoice. That is the the controlling word here in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So there's lots we can talk about, and we've touched on some of this already. What, What does it mean for the Christian to rejoice? Yeah, I mean, that is just crucial. Uh, you know, I teach pastoral counseling, and a lot of people, I think, hear that. If they're, if they're a little depressed, if they're anxious uh, about life, they read this and say, well, Paul's just commanding me to be joyful, and I don't feel like being joyful right now. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Um, John Kleinig uh, has written some things before about joy. He actually said his uh, uh, confirmation verse years and years ago was this verse, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And he points out that happiness is something that we tend to think of as coming from inside of us and more of a fleeting emotion that uh, excludes sadness. But joy is a lasting state of being that can coexist with sadness and suffering. And it comes from largely outside of us, that we see that God has done things for us that even if we're going through a temporary suffering period, a temporary grief period, we can still also rejoice. Um, I still, my my father died 10 years ago and uh, we were all there with him when he died. And one of the very first things out of my mother's mouth, as grief-stricken as she was that, that uh, he had died, was, it's a good day for Dick. It was a good day for him because she knew where he was going to go. She didn't have any anxiety about his eternal life. Uh, she knew his faith. We all knew his faith. And so we knew that he had gone to paradise to be with his Savior. And so we can rejoice even in those tragic, difficult times that we live through because we're living in this 
sin-filled, groaning world that um, wasn't supposed to be like this. It was supposed to be like the Garden of Eden permanently, but our sin, our parents, first parents' sin, Adam and Eve, have taken us down this sinful road. And so Jesus has had to come place himself in our place, humble himself, what we got in, in Philippians chapter 2, and give his life for us so that we can now know, oh, even when we are suffering, struggling in this life because of the thorns and thistles, the uh, curses that happen in a sinful world, we can still rejoice because of what our Savior Jesus has done for us. So, so yeah, notice it does say in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It doesn't say pick yourself up by your own happiness bootstraps. It says rejoice in the Lord always. Um, yeah, that the phrase in the Lord, uh, it's easy to skip over because we're so <laughs> used. I mean, we, we know the word rejoice, so we hear the word joy, but the phrase in the Lord, I think, is is equally important. I mean, and it, you know, to use the example that you brought up, it ties also back into to what Paul says in Philippians 1, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, because either way, he's with the Lord. And I mean, that's the same, that's where the joy comes from, is the the being in the Lord, being with the Lord. And, and that is something, as you said, that's from outside of us. It's not something that's from the inside. And that's, I think, one of the 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 ways that this verse you know it, it can get us it can catch us the wrong way is as you said Paul's not he's not hitting us over the head saying you better be more joyful <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean I, I do think you know there there are the the moments when when you'll read a verse like this and and you'll recognize you know I I'm not very joyful and the law will accuse you in that sense and that's that's fine for the law to do that the law should do that. But I don't think that that's the primary purpose that Paul's writing this. He's not you know, trying to beat you over the head to, to be more joyful, but he's rather, I think, trying to show you where the joy actually comes from. And it comes from the Lord. And, and when it's not coming from within, then he's pointing toward that true source of joy, which who is the Lord? Yeah. And in the third chapter, he was talking about maturing in the Lord and actually imitating him. And kind of, you know, could you imagine getting a letter from a friend of yours that was in jail and he says, imitate me. You're kind of going, what? You're in jail. Why would I want to imitate you? But he's being joyful even in jail, even imprisoned, because he knows he's imprisoned for the Lord. And he has this opportunity now to write this thank you letter uh, for the support that he's received from this Philippian church ahead of time. And yeah, in four chapters, he uses the word joy 16 times. So uh, mm. uh, it's just all over. All, rejoicing in the Lord always is something that they can imitate Paul, despite the situation that he finds himself in. Right. And so I'm going dig, to dig in a little bit more to something that, that you said. You know, you said happiness is something that comes from the inside. And it normally excludes sadness, but joy is something that's lasting. It comes from the outside, and it can coexist with sadness. I'd like to hear, you know, particularly from the perspective of, of pastoral counseling, because I know that's a, 
one of your expertises and what you teach there at the seminary, especially, mm-hmm. how, how does that, how does that work? I mean, how, do, how does joy coexist with, with sadness, with suffering, with being in prison? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's hard to counsel people toward that. Uh, you just have to keep pointing people to what Jesus has done for them. Our own natural tendency mm-hmm. is to look inside of ourselves I uh, actually was seeing something uh, in that Kleinig had written that uh, greed is the opposite of contentment. And I went, yeah, when we, when we start to think of ourselves first and foremost, and even, again, depressed people, anxious people, people with mental disorders of various other kinds, uh, people that are grieving uh, because of the loss of a loved one, they can all start to get kind of self-focused. And that's when they do get self-focused, we want to, as fellow Christians, as potential caregivers to them, to step alongside of them and and empathize with the suffering that they're going through so that they don't just hear us as cheerleaders on the other side. Um, Galatians 6.2 is a common verse. I carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called upon as Christians to carry each other's burdens through this lifetime. Um, again, our American culture tends to, well, even in our Bill of Rights, uh, we talk about the pursuit of happiness. Uh, you know, that's a very American ideal to uh, pursue after happiness, but that's something that we as individuals are doing in America to pursue that internal happiness fleeting feeling because good things happen to us when we are successful or whatever but those successful things that happen to us in this life are going to eventually go away and the only true joy only lasting joy that goes beyond our success as americans uh, is the heavenly joy that we have to to look forward to so helping someone who is anxious, who is uh, uh, depressed, who is struggling in, in some way in a longer term version of, of suffering uh, really does require us to empathize with them. Maybe even, I mean, here's another, uh, I think we've underused the complaint psalms. Uh, yes, we the, have. Yeah, the complaint psalms like Psalm 13, you know, uh, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? A lot of Christians think that they have to be happy all the time because of what Jesus has done for them or because it just is a good Christian thing to do. Uh, About 40% of the Psalms are complaint Psalms or lament Psalms. I heard another uh, speaker on, I think on this program a few weeks ago, actually call them the grief Psalms. And I I rather liked that, uh, that these are psalms we can speak when we aren't feeling happy about things and we want to go to God and complain to Him. He has given us those, and you know, we as Lutherans don't use them very well. I, I was, it was pointed out to me years ago that our previous hymnal, the Lutheran worship, didn't have any of the complaint psalms in it. It had 60 out of 150 psalms, and it had all of the uh, repentance psalms but it didn't have any of the complaint psalms out of, you know, like 60 or 80 complaint psalms. It didn't have any of them. And so we went a generation 
not regularly using those complaint psalms in our uh, worship unless a pastor specifically brought them in from outside the hymnal. Now then, the LSB, Lutheran uh, Service Book, does have many of the complaint psalms, many of the lament psalms, so we can use those liturgically to teach our people. It's okay to say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Uh, because those complaint psalms usually are about two-thirds complaint and then about one-third ending in, but I know that your faithfulness is eternal and uh, you are listening to me, O Lord. And even the fact that we're complaining to God uh, means that we have a relationship with him. Too many people want to say, oh, I've had this bad thing happen to me. That makes me question whether God even cares or even exists. No. And this bad thing that happened to us is because of the sin that we're all struggling with. And God is still with us, just like he followed Adam and Eve into the garden after their sin and said, where are you? Uh, he is still seeking us and he's provided a way for us through sending his son <laughs> as a little baby who then grew to be a man who took upon himself all of our suffering all of our diseases, all of our sin, and conquered that shame through his cross uh, so that we can be confident that he is near to us and we can live in him. We've been studying the Psalms in adult Bible class here at Grace since about June. We're going to probably mm. be in them a while if we continue to just go them one after the other because there's 150 of them. But it's it's been really great because you do get to see the the wide variety that's there in the Psalter for us to pray. And these these complaint Psalms, the grief Psalms, the lament Psalms, as you, you said, are often challenging for us to use. But this is, I mean, I, I love I love the wide variety that's there in the scriptures, because when we experience the fullness of this human life, we need all of that. You know, I mean, and so this text from Philippians 4, it, it's very much putting in front of us the joy that we have in the Lord. But the the complaint psalms are there. You know, I mean, it, it's not Paul's main point here, but when he talks about, as, as we'll talk about later, the prayer and supplication letting requests be made known to God, mm -hmm. that's where those complaint psalms find their place. And right. I, I think the the challenge, and I think you're right about our American context, this, you know, pursuit of happiness that's kind of built into to who we are as a country, sort of we, we forget about the complaint psalms, that that those do that that all coexists in our Christian life. That that we're there are moments where we need those those complaint psalms to cry out, how long, O Lord, how long is this going to last? Why is this happening to me? And and then we but we need that, and we need Philippians four to go with it, so that we don't you know somehow wind up in despair, or just say you know poor pitiful me, but we are brought back to this reality that all of this is happening in the Lord. And I, I mean I'm I, I'm convinced like like you said that we need to make use of these laments or complaints more often. Having gone through the book of Jeremiah not that long ago on Sharper Iron, I mean, Jeremiah complains all the time, <laughs> and, and and it can be difficult for us to yeah. read, but we we need that. Yeah. Um. And I, I mean, I think, and this is just part of my own reflection on it, because if if we don't lament to the Lord, 
then it, it, we stay inside. You know, what, what you're talking about earlier, the happiness coming from inside. If we never bring the complaint to the Lord, then the complaining is just inside within us. Mm-hmm. It's only when we, when we give that to the Lord that the outside help can come. And so I, I mean, this sounds, I don't know, it, it sounds cliche, but I, I think the lamenting is a part of God's healing process for us so that we actually take it to him so that we're not trying to help ourselves, but we're letting him be the one to help us. Right, right. And again, I told you offline, uh, uh, other Christians are catching up with this as well. I I and two other Lutheran Church Missouri Synod members spoke at a Christian counseling conference for the Houston Baptist University Christian Psychology Program, specifically on complaint psalms and lament psalms and their use in Christian counseling, care of souls. So Baptists are getting it. Lutherans are getting it. We all need to be using these complaint psalms. And, you know, my children are adults now, so I don't hear very many of their complaints as I did when they were little kids. You're in the midst of uh, having (laughs) zero to 10 year olds. So uh, uh, yeah, you probably hear a fair amount of complaining at times (laughs) and you don't mind, at least I didn't mind when my kids complained to me about something that was going on as long as they were talking to me and would listen to me and, and I could comfort them with that complaint or whatever had happened. Uh, you know, if they, if they continued to nag and nag and nag for hours and hours, that was something else. But uh, as a father, I wanted to comfort my children when they had a complaint about something going wrong in life. And that's what our father in heaven wants to do too. He wants us to talk to him with those prayers, those supplications, those complaints, and also with those thanksgivings when we come back and say, oh, yeah, and the big picture is you sent your son, Jesus, to be our Messiah, to be our Savior, to conquer even death itself through his resurrection. Wow. When I step back and remember that, all my complaining, while real, is put into proper perspective, and I can still trust in a God who has saved me in those ways, even when I'm struggling with whatever earthly struggle. You know, maybe I don't have enough money. Maybe I don't have enough to eat. Maybe I am suffering because of somebody else did something horrible to me, and that's real suffering. I mean, that's a lot of what a lot of what people go through in suffering is PTSD-like, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, somebody else's sin or some other tragedy has impinged upon their life, and it wasn't supposed to happen that way. But that trauma, uh, whatever it might have been, is still having a major impact in their life, and they need to be able to complain about that trauma to their God through the complaint psalms but also know that they can still rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul's going to say it again to emphasize it, rejoice. That's right. Yep. And and that joy is always ours because we are in the Lord. And, and that's what Paul's writing about. That's what he's giving to us here in Philippians chapter four. We're going to take a short break here on Sharper Iron, but we will be right back. We're talking to Dr. Rick Mars today about Philippians chapter four. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 13th. We are studying Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7 with the Reverend Dr. Rick Mars. He is professor of practical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Mars, prior to the break, we were talking about the joy that belongs to us as Christians always. It belongs to us because we are in the Lord, and that's true even when we're suffering, even when we're uttering those complaint psalms. The Lord always brings us back to himself, to his joy that we have in his son, Jesus Christ. As Paul continues here in Philippians 4, he says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This this sentence has always struck me in English as it kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit. Wait, wait, what is that? Where where did reasonableness come from? What <laughs> what's the connection between joy and the? And I think we need to unpack that word reasonableness. So what's the connection here? Yeah, the Greek word there is kind of hard to translate directly into English. It it's often translated gentleness, and so I think it's some sort of combination of gentle reasonableness is what's being implied, but we don't want to say that. That's too many syllables to put into an English translation. But you, we've all experienced gently reasonable people before, and when we're around those gently reasonable people, we kind of sense their peace and sense their confidence that, hey, this is going to work out in the end. Uh, and we kind of take a deep breath and go, okay, well, but it's, it's when we see people that get highly anxious, highly troubled, uh, even angry in situations where they may be challenged, that they get less than gentle. Um, you know, I have to talk about that a lot with pastors. You know, Second Timothy 2, uh, Paul calls upon pastors, uh, seminarians when I'm training them, uh, to be gentle even when others are attacking them. Um, uh, when others are calling them out on something and the Holy Spirit then calls us to repentance. God is the one who calls us to repentance, not the, not the pastor, actually. It's God's word that calls us to repentance. But it's really easy for us. Again, we, we see it all the time. All you have to do is turn on the news and you see people yelling at each other, angry at each other for all kinds of things. And we get anxious around angry people. Um, angry people get angrier around other angry people and we quit talking to each other in a gentle reasonable tone and therefore nothing gets solved and relationships are torn apart when we live in that level of of anger and conflict all the time so uh uh, I call out, I'm on the board of directors for Ambassadors of Reconciliation and reconciliation strategies that I've learned from ambassadors throughout the last 20 plus years have been incredibly helpful. And so I always point people to those and they use some of these same verses to 
call people to say, hey, even if you're angry with each other about some church decision that's being made, do you realize that you're called upon as fellow baptized Christians to treat each other with love and respect because of what Christ has done? And Christ answered his own opponents that way. Even the opponents, the Pharisees who were sending him uh, to the Romans so that he would be crucified, he didn't raise his voice. He spoke in a gentle, reasonable way, and they will, and every knee will bow eventually to this gentle, reasonable uh, Savior that we have. And yeah, I guess that kind of catches it all. So, yeah, I, I find that the, uh, several things that you did there were, I think were very helpful. One was, and I, I hadn't really noticed this, but just the contrast that you were drawing between reasonableness in verse five and then the anxiousness that he brings up in verse six. I mm. mean, just contextually, I think that's that's an excellent thing to do. That you know, whatever whatever the the whatever reasonableness means in verse five is going to be the opposite of the anxiousness in verse six, and I, I think that's very helpful. And then the connecting it back to the mind of Christ that's in Philippians chapter two, I think is is fantastic mm-hmm. as well. You know, what have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, and then you know everything that that entails, the humility that, that he had, the, maybe the meekness is, is part of it. You know, that, that word gentleness, I've seen something like a yieldingness is, I know that's not really a very good English word, I suppose, but the, the willingness to, to consider the other's needs before my own. Again, going back to what Paul says in Philippians two. And I, I think, I mean, that, that ties very much into this joy that I have in the Lord, because when, when I'm in the Lord, I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure because he's got me. And so I can be gentle with others. I can yield to others. I can, can show reasonableness to others, uh, not just sort of, you know, acting on whatever the, the raw emotion might be inside of me, but, but, you know, centered in the Lord. I think, I mean, you know, this is maybe a slightly different uh, way that it shows up, but I think the example that you gave of your of your mom earlier and the way that mm. that she responded to your your father's death i mean that i think is an example of this of this word this reasonableness because she mm-hmm. she was confident in the lord and so she expressed herself that way yeah and i i do like this kind of combination of gentle reasonableness i think i think it, when it gets translated just gentleness it can be understood by english speakers as passivity. And that's not what's being said. And when it's translated only reasonableness, it can be think, okay, we just have to be logical about everything. Well, no, that's not really what Paul is emphasizing either. He's saying, this is part of who you are. uh, And it is part of who your savior is. Therefore, you want to imitate him as well, remembering what he was like when he went to the cross, even remembering what he was like when he resurrected from the dead. I mean, if, if, if I were Jesus in my own sinfulness and I was resurrected from the dead, I'd have gone after Peter and said, Peter, I told you you were going to uh, uh, deny me three times and you did it. Well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus went to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? And he said it three times so that Peter had to respond back as many times Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. As many times as Peter rejected his Lord, denied his Lord, he got to 
confess his Lord in his Lord's presence again. Um, again, just all that kind of reasonableness, reasonable, gentle reasonableness of our Savior is very, very important to remember and to imitate. Mm. Well, and then that Paul would say, let that be known to everyone. This is how you interact yeah. with others. And it does, I mean, I think it... You know, it gives testimony to to who you are in Christ, and then ultimately to who Christ is. This is something that that others see, and I mean, and you know, again, the example that you gave of of your mom, you know, like, wow, how how is that possible that that you can react that way when when your own husband has died? I mean, that's that's an opportunity then to give witness to who Christ is and the confidence that anyone can have in Him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very very much so. Um, so Dr. Mars, then yeah. the, the text continues, Paul, Paul grounds this. And I really, I mean, see, I see this next phrase almost as a hinge between the reasonableness and then the do not be anxious. And the statement is the Lord is at hand, which is, is simple enough. You know, the Lord is, is at hand. He's near. What, what does Paul mean by that short sentence? Yeah. And I actually checked with uh, one of the larger commentaries I had in my office and they said, you know, we're not quite sure. Is he concluding uh, his previous statement with this, or is he starting the next statement? Is it, let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand, or is he saying, the Lord is his hand, Lord is at hand, therefore do not be anxious? Or what that author, I think, kind of came to is it's a double entendre sort of situation. He's actually saying both. He has this small little... uh, insertion remember that the lord is near and he's near to us now but he's also one day closer to returning i even i noticed that the uh, psalm for today um is psalm 85 9 or 85 and in verse 9 it says surely his salvation is near is near to those who fear him and then in verse 10 loyal love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace kiss each other. So that psalm is, well, Paul's probably echoing some of this, that psalm or similar psalms in what he's writing here. There, Our salvation is near to us in Jesus. And for Paul, it was just like 15 or 20 years earlier. So it felt uh, like it was close to him at that point. But it's also near to us in his word, in his sacraments, uh, in our mutual encouragement of the saints when we're around each other, uh, encouraging each other to rejoice. I mean, even when you get back to, to verse four, rejoicing is not something you can actually do just by yourself. Rejoicing is something that by its very nature is sort of social. Uh, we let other people rejoice alongside of us at the same time. So happiness might be something that we can feel individually when we're not around somebody else, but rejoicing is something that people do together in a group. And we Americans don't do as well with group sorts of feelings as we do individual feelings. So, mm. Well, and, and that joy, again, comes from the Lord. And then yeah. with all those who are in the Lord, we share in this joy together. And, and the fact that he is at hand, that he is near, makes all the difference. And I, I mean, I, I, this was a, a text for 
Thanksgiving this year. It's a, this is always one of the optional epistles for Thanksgiving is this section from Philippians four, as, as well as more verses. And I, I mean, I, I meditated upon this with the congregation here on Thanksgiving. You know, what does this mean that the Lord is at hand? And I, I think it's, it's a both. And as, as you've said, you know, he is with us in word and sacrament and he's also at hand. His coming is near. It's nearer now than it, than it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of those give reason to us to rejoice, to be, you know, the reasonableness, gentleness, to to not be anxious because the Lord is near to us in word and sacrament, because his coming is near. This affects the way we live right now. And I think, I mean, there's a there's a wonderful Advent connection for us. The the word coming again, he comes to us now in word and sacrament. He is coming again on the last day. And all of that is founded upon the fact that he's come already as Savior all of that, you know, just sort of bubbles up and wells up as this foundation that overflows in our lives in these various ways that Paul's talking about, the rejoicing, the reasonableness, gentleness, the, the not being anxious. And it's all because the Lord, the Lord is at hand, which is, I mean, I, I know in, in, in my time as a pastor, this is one of the most comforting things for Christians is to know the Lord is with you and the Lord is coming again. I mean, that, that fact is it's just such a, I mean, unspeakable comfort to us as Christians. Yeah, it's even a case where I, I teach seminarians that, you know, one option that they, they have in pastoral care, uh, when somebody tells them a traumatic story that just horrendous things have happened or whatever, sometimes I just look up to heaven and go, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, just that little prayer is a true prayer. I mean, it is a case where I pray every day, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you know, release us from this time of trial and tribulation that we're living through here in this world. Um, come and we will rejoice with you forever in the new new creation. But just to pray that out loud in front of a person that's been traumatized or grieving helps to point them back to the reality that Oh yeah, Jesus is in control of all this. Even if I'm, again, frustrated and complaining with what's happened to me at this very time, come quickly, Lord Jesus is something we can always pray and should pray on a daily basis. So, right, and and again, that fact then to to go to the the next verse that takes away the anxiousness. So in, in verse six, do not be anxious about anything. I think this is another one of those cases, Dr. Mars, where we, we want to be careful that this isn't, again, Paul's not sort of beating you over the head, quit being anxious, stop being right. anxious. That that usually doesn't work that way anyways. But but much like Jesus, you know, when in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he, he says there's no need to worry, and he talks about the birds of the air and the, the lilies of the field, you know, he's he's inviting us to to see the reasons that we, we don't need to worry, we don't need to be anxious. It seems like Paul's doing the same thing here. Yeah, yeah. If we understand... I was talking to a student the other day who the the word narrative had finally made complete sense to him because he understood narrative to be the smaller stories uh, in Scripture. He hadn't realized that it could also mean the big narrative, that the entire scope of Scripture was one long story, and we're living out that story to the very end. We're all part of this uh, narrative. And actually, in a sense, kind of comes up uh, in the verse right before our text, uh, where he says, 
Uh, these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellows, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul's reminding us that this end is coming, but that all of our names are, are written in the book of life. So if we realize that we're part of this longer narrative, and sometimes in particular chapters, bad things happen in that chapter, but that at the end of that chapter or the end of the book, things do turn out better. And especially in this narrative, which God has promised us, um, that, yeah, he said, don't be anxious about what you eat, what you drink, Jesus said, because your Father in heaven takes care of you, just like he takes care of the birds. Uh, he takes, and you're more important than the birds. He will take care of you. We live in this world that wants to just emphasize anxiousness. I think it's our 24-hour news cycle. If you just turn it on, you just see anxious people all over the place, either anxious about politics, anxious about their sexuality, anxious about uh, COVID-19, the new variants and so forth coming at us. We have been anxious for the last two years about that, but anxious about everything. And here's Paul saying, don't be anxious about anything because you're part of this bigger story and it is all going to work out in the end. Even after your death, if you die before Jesus returns, um, again, Ephesians 2.10 is a verse that I use a lot around campus for you are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do the good works that God has created in advance for you to do. Uh, we Lutherans tend to emphasize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which we should, by saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. But Ephesians 2, 10, we are his workmanship, and the good works that he's put in place for us to do are actually his good works for us to do, not ones that we've somehow created. And so that relieves me of some anxiety uh, when I realize, okay, I just have to keep doing the good works that God has put before me on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis, in the vocations that I have as pastor, professor, husband, father. Um, I don't need to be anxious about anything because it is all going to work out eventually in the end. I mean, I think the the bringing up the narrative, the story that this is—it's all God's narrative. It's all His story. You know, I mean, all of history. It, he's directing it to its end, and we know the end. That's the the Lord is at hand again, and and that brings comfort now. That brings joy now because we know the one who is the author of this narrative and where He's taking us. That's and that's it's only good, and, and that takes away the anxiousness now. And and so then well, what when the anxiousness arises, Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How do these things go together, prayer and supplication and thanksgiving? Well, kind of like we were talking about before, he, he wants to be in relationship with us. He has spoken to us via his word. Now then we get to speak back to him in prayer and supplication, even when we want to complain to him. Um, he wants to hear those complaints. So he's given us 60 different Psalms to uh, use to complain back to him, or at least model the complaints back to him. So we can pray, go to him. If we feel anxious about something, 
we can ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is just the perfect model prayer for doing that. As, as Luther reminds us that it, it does allow us to go to him as dear children go to their dear father who wants to listen to them. And as he can, as he wills, if he thinks it's a good idea for them, he will uh, fulfill their request of him and God can fulfill. And, but in the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name is the first thing we say back to him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray for his will to be done. Um, he wants us to do that. I, I teach people to pray the Lord's Prayer, but to pray it with pauses so that it's a more meditative, slower sort of process. We normally do it, and it takes about 50 seconds to pray through the entire Lord's Prayer just without stopping. But then if you're like me, I get to petition five or six and I forget that I didn't actually concentrate on what I was saying any petition two or three but if I say it slower one petition at a time kind of ponder for 10 or 15 or 20 seconds what each petition means both from the catechism and uh, for my life at that particular time and then go on to the next petition then I'm making the prayers and supplications with thanksgiving because I'm thanking him in the fourth petition for all the daily bread that he's given to me. Uh, we will just done thanksgiving a couple of weeks earlier from uh, uh, this broadcast. Um, you know, I, I was listening to some of this Philippians on audio uh, over thanksgiving and just realizing how much joy and thanksgiving comes up over and over again. Uh, when you listen to God's word in an audio version, you hear things sometimes differently than when you just read it. So I always encourage people to, to do both of those things. But yeah, praying the Lord's Prayer with pauses. I thought I was discovering something uh, new when I first started doing this 20 plus years ago with my former congregation. And then I found out after the fact that, oh no, Luther was telling people to do this 500 years ago. So uh, <laughs> he always beats me to the punch. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The, the large, just as a real quick aside, the large catechism on the Lord's prayer has always been one of my favorite sections for precisely the reason that you're saying, because you, you slow down through it and you really, you know, get everything that's there for you that, that the Lord is giving in that prayer. We, we need to move on because we have about five minutes here to talk oh, yeah. about the last verse. No, big verse, big <laughs> so, verse. I know, I know. So the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, again, I know it's a tall task. Give us, give us ever, as much as you can from that verse. What is this peace of God? How does it guard our hearts and minds? Yeah, and again, a lot of people have heard their pastors end their sermons with this phrase. So it's very, very familiar to lots and lots of Christians the peace of God, which one of our uh, exegetes, uh, Jim Belts, actually thinks the word should be dominates uh, all understanding. It should be a stronger word than just surpasses or transcends, as it often gets translated. But that peace of God, and notice the previous verses have been imperatives. They've sounded like commands, even though you could probably better uh, understand them as invitations to live out the Christian life in this way, not as commands. But this one's actually more of a promise. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses or dominates all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A promise is something different than a command. And here's a situation. Again, this is one of the verses that I, uh, when you gave me the option of some verses to go over, I saw this one. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about this more. Um, it's one of those go-to verses for pastoral care situations, kind of like Romans 8 is a very good go-to place for people who are troubled and struggling because there we learn that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans that words cannot express. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see the hope that we have in Jesus' resurrection and that we will be given new bodies. And here, when we're feeling anxious, it's good to just remember that we have been promised peace with God. Uh, we talk about vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation. We have complete and utter shalom, peace, concord uh, with God, oneness with Him, and He has promised that, and it surpasses all understanding. I mean, uh, uh, one of my other colleagues preached a sermon once, I still remember, that a lot of uh, pastors put in all human understanding. No, the word human is not in there. This says surpasses all understanding, and his point was, this, this seems to surpass even what angels can understand, this peace of God that has been conquered for us in Christ Jesus. And again, peace sometimes does have to be conquered. Uh, to bring about peace, something, some bad army has to be conquered to bring about that peace. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, was conquered all of the bad armies. And that does surpass my understanding. And therefore, it does guard my heart, my my side of me that is more uh, emotional, and it also guides my mind, guards my mind. It helps me to think through and be logical, be theological about what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. So the emphasis is back there. It's not just some generic God sort of thing. It is in Christ Jesus himself. Reverend Dr. Rick Mars is Professor of Practical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Dr. Mars, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you very much for having me, Pastor Apple. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about this epistle text or any of the other Advent epistle readings, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.